News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, we know from the latest numbers that were released on Friday by StatsCan that the employment numbers continue to improve, but there are still people out of work after all this time of the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of people still feeling the financial effects of what happened over the past year, even if they are back at work. You know, between the entertainment industry, between tourism, there's thousands of Canadians who have been relying on those pandemic relief payments to just try to keep their head above water right now. Global News journalist Erica Alini has been doing some digging on what it's like to live on those COVID relief benefits for an entire year. She joins us now to discuss this. Good morning, Erica. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Is there? Did you get an idea of kind of which groups found themselves relying on long-term government support during the pandemic? Yeah, it was uh, overwhelmingly um, the groups that you just mentioned. Um, so artists, so entertainment, uh, relying on sort of in-person performances, um, and the hospitality industry. Right. Those two were the groups that really stood out. And what did they say about, you know, the amount of money that they had? And what was it like? What has it been like for them? So everyone was very grateful. That was uh, a sentiment that really came across very strongly, uh, you know, grateful that uh, the federal government threw together this plan as quickly as they did, um, and that it was two thousand dollars a month. Um, you know, there have been there have been problems with the rollout of uh, the CERB, uh, but all in all, like there was this overwhelming sense of you know we're very grateful because um, when you compare it to what people would have been able to rely on social assistance or even traditional EI. a month is a lot. Um, At the same time, if you have to live on it for a prolonged period of time, you know, things get very tight. So that was the other sentiment. You know, yes, we're grateful, but, you know, our savings are depleted. We've run out of credit card debt uh, and we're, we're just barely getting by. Yeah. So are are that same group of people then who had to rely on this support, are they worried about kind of getting back on their feet as it seems like things are getting back to normal? Um, So that depends. So I've heard from one one artist in particular, um, she was worried that there there was going to be um, sort of a bit of a long runway to get going. Um, so, you know, she said, um, even when things reopen, um, you know, we're, we're going to be the, the last ones <laughs> to go back to normality, right? Um, people may be wary of going to concerts, of going to crowded places. It takes time for venues to, you know, to, to plan events and, and to book events. So it's not like, you know, suddenly we're just going to go back into the swing of, of things. It will, it will take us uh, a, a bit to get back on our feet. And so she was saying, I hope that, um, you know, policymakers keep this in mind, that, that people in our industry, in our situation, need a bit of easing off mm-hmm. of these government benefits. Um, and then you also had, though, other cases in which um, people said the CERB and having sort of that more more money and being a little more comfortable than they would have otherwise uh, been on unemployment benefits allowed them to uh, switch gears, to, to pivot, <laughs> 
switch careers, um, and now they're making a lot more money than they were making, um, you know, before the pandemic. And and they credited uh, the CERB with giving them the resources that they needed. Um, to right. um, yeah, to get going. What a wide variety of experiences, though, for the people that you talk to. Yes, yeah, and uh, it, it's been a really interesting, some really interesting conversations. Is there apprehension? Do you think, Erica, about kind of what the future now, the next few months hold for these people? So there was apprehension that there was this sort of um, cliff. <laughs> looming on the horizon uh, with the CRB um, running out, but that's sort of less so now because in, in February uh, the government announced an extension of uh, both CRB and EI, so people are, people are feeling uh, better. Um, I didn't, I didn't um, you know, except for, for artists who are sort of saying, you know, uh, maybe we'll need some sort of scaled back benefit for a little bit longer. Um, I didn't, I didn't hear too much concern about what happens when the benefits run out, because I think it, there's a sense that Ottawa, you know, the, the government's been there so far <laughs> and hopefully will continue to be there. Yeah. Fingers crossed for those people. Erica, <laughs> thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about some of the winners, the losers, the history makers from the Grammys last night. It was pretty much just watching a whole lot of performances. I felt like very few awards actually got handed out. Joining us now is CBS News reporter Wendy Gillette for more on this. Good morning, Wendy. Good morning. Did it feel like that to you? Just a whole lot of performances? Yeah, definitely. But what a huge night for women, right? (laughs) It really was impressive. Let's start with the history that was made. Like, what a night for Beyonce. Yes, definitely. The biggest female of all in the music world, Beyonce. Of course, she broke the record for the most Grammy wins ever by any female artist or any singer, male or female. She won four more statues, including for Best R&B Performance for her album Black Parade and Best music video. So now she has 28 awards. So I guess where are you going to put them all, right? Well, I guess she (laughs) has like huge house. So maybe she can put one award in every room of her house. I'm sure she has 28 rooms in her house. She (laughs) put one in every room. That would be really good. One in every bathroom, one in every bedroom. (laughs) Um, She's now tied with Quincy Jones for the second most Grammy wins. Um, And she doesn't have many more until she breaks the complete record, which is 31. The late conductor, George Solti, I'm not sure the pronunciation of the last name, but it has the most decorated, uh, he's the most decorated uh, Grammy winner ever with 31. So only three to go. Right. But of course, there's another female who uh, broke some records as well, Taylor Swift. She also made history becoming the first woman to win Album of the Year three times. And, she, of course, she won it this year for Folklore. All right, so she had a good night as well. And so it seemed to me the other big winner last night was Megan Thee Stallion. Yes, and Billie Eilish uh, won big as well. And she said that Megan Thee Stallion should have won for Record of the Year, Billie Eilish winning Record of the Year award for the second year in a row for All I Ever Wanted. And she said, well, I shouldn't have even won this. Megan Thee Stallion should have won, but... She won three Grammys of her own, including Best New Artist and Best Rap Song for Savage, which also features, going back to 
the top of our conversation, Beyonce. Right. Uh, so, what did you think of the performances? Like, I it was funny because I was waiting for I wanted to see Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion perform, but then I thought, well, they're not actually going to perform their hit song, are they? Like, how can they do that on network television? <laughs> love seeing you know people performing again you know i thought it was just a great night to see everyone up there again because you know for these artists they haven't performed for a year so of course watching them perform with social distancing no audience is kind of a weird thing but i think it's just exciting to see everyone perform again for the first time in a year and can't you just wait i cannot wait to see concerts again that would Right. I've just missed that so much. I was wondering, though, too, Wendy, about how the controversy went over, right? Because leading up to the Grammys, there was a lot of discussion about are they still relevant? You had artists like uh, The Weeknd saying that he wasn't even going to submit his music anymore for Grammys consideration. Do you think that impacted the show at all? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's hard to say, you know. I tried to look at it with sort of open eyes and just look at what the show is. But yeah, there's been so much controversy the last couple years about about the nominations and uh, are they really representative anymore and and, um, are they inclusive? And, you know, I got to say probably no, because, you know, if you if you don't include people like like him, so, you know, are you really inclusive? Right. Okay. So a big test, I guess, will be next year then when things do get more back to normal. This seemed kind of strange. You had a very small audience and it was all essentially people who were nominated for the awards. Right. Right. Them all watching each other. Yeah. And so there wasn't any crowd noise either. And I think I feel like for something like the Grammys, the crowd noise is really essential. Yeah. And people clapping and watching and enjoying themselves. But I just love watching music again and can't wait to start going to concerts. Yeah, that was pretty good. All right, Wendy, thank you so much. Yeah, sure. I appreciate your time. That's Wendy Gillette, CBS News reporter, talking about uh, the Grammys last night. This is Mornings with Simi. The Provincial Health Officer Order on Gatherings and Events has been amended to allow for outdoor gatherings for up to 10 people. That is Dr. Bonnie Henry. But of course, outdoor gatherings in your community, not traveling to somewhere else and having an outdoor gathering. But it does seem like there was this relaxing of restrictions right just before spring break. So what does that mean for some popular provincial tourist destinations? Well, joining us now is Dan Law, the mayor-elect of the District of Tofino to talk about what he's seeing in that community. Uh, Thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simi. And when do you get sworn in as mayor? Uh, on the 23rd, 4 o'clock. Okay, well, not that you're keeping track, right? So coming up very, very quickly. That's right. Uh, let's talk about what you have been doing. Do you have concerns that spring break, you know, is going to bring more people to Tofino? Uh, well, there was, I mean, there was the thought that we would have a crush of tourists coming, but uh, personally, and I, and I speak for myself here, as you, as you know, I'm not the mayor yet, but... Uh, mayor-elect at this time. So I, I haven't seen a huge amount of people here. Uh, there definitely is more more people, but there certainly isn't, uh, it isn't an overwhelming amount right now. Okay, so our, what have businesses, like, what are they saying? Is there a preparation, perhaps, for more people showing up? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, we still have a lot of accommodation providers closed, uh, and a lot of accommodation providers that are open for essential travel there restricting to Vancouver Island uh, travelers as well. So 
so there is a you know there is a, a lower amount of accommodations open, and the businesses that are open have uh, very very strict protocols in place. So there's not you know restricted numbers of patrons. Uh, restaurants are, are restricting the number of people in, and and all the protocols in place, WorkSafe protocols are are quite strict. So. It, it's great. I mean, everybody's doing a great job here, I must say. Right. And how have the restaurants managed? Because we all know Tofino is a big, you know, food destination as well. Uh, have mm-hmm. they managed to stay open? They have. A lot of restaurants have uh, have adapted and shifted quite well uh, for the most part. So, you know, they uh, reduced numbers of patrons, of course, uh, um, spread out over... Uh, you know, so there's distancing, and a lot of a lot of restaurants have installed uh, these plexiglass shields between uh, between seating. So that's been uh, that's been just in the last month they've been doing that. And um, boy, what else can I tell you? A lot of a lot of restaurants are doing takeout, so they've shifted to you know they've closed right. down their their seating and and they're doing takeout, and people are are eating outside, which is great. So Dan, from your experience, from what you've been able to observe then during the pandemic, would you say that, you know, people from outside of Tofino pretty much listened? You know, there were a couple times where Josie Osborne, the mayor at the time said, you know, we, we love you, but just don't come right now. Would you say that most people listened? <laughs> well, certainly over the winter, uh, it was very quiet here. I mean, last summer was, was an anomaly. I think everybody came. At least that's what it, it, it seemed felt like, like that, right? <laughs> yeah, it definitely felt like that. And it was for—I mean, it, well, honestly, it was really overwhelming for a lot of the residents and uh, and even business owners and and employees. Plus, I mean, you add all the COVID restrictions and and everything else, and every—you know—it's in the middle of a pandemic. Everybody's feeling stressed. Uh, it, it was uh, it was an intense it was an intense season last year. So you will be the mayor then right smack in the middle of spring break coming up right on March 23rd. Yeah, that's right. What, what that's would right. your message be then to people from outside of Tofino? So the, the district is following provincial uh, guidelines. So, so we would say uh, avoid non-essential travel uh, for sure. And uh, those people that do come uh, just realize that, uh, you know, it is, uh, we are trying to keep everybody safe, you know, visitors, residents. It's a very small community and we have, uh, we have very few resources and we've got a small hospital. Uh, we're far away from major centers. So if there are, uh, if there is an outbreak of, of COVID, it does impact people here quite That's- a bit. So just to, just to be very aware of the safety All right. We hope so. Dan, thanks so much for your time and best of luck. Okay. Thanks very much, Simi. That's Dan Law. He's the mayor-elect of Tofino. Hasn't been sworn in yet. Will be sworn in on March 23rd. Is replacing Josie Osborne, who was elected in the last provincial election. Uh, So, yeah, they are a little concerned in Tofino, as you heard. They had a crazy busy last summer. And I was reading a story on the weekend, and I thought it was an interesting, um, you know, idea that once the restrictions are relaxed, once uh, everything, you know, people have been vaccinated and things can start to get back to normal, that places like Tofino, so tour, the tourism industry should essentially brace itself for what, it, what the story described as an onslaught 
of visitors because people have all this pent up urge to go somewhere and do something. So these places that have been almost like the hardest hit when it comes to the pandemic could see, could be the ones who, once things are over, have to rapidly scale up and deal with the huge numbers of people who are suddenly going to want to do that vacation that they had put off. Maybe they'd always planned to go there and all of a sudden they do, you know, just the number of people who are going to start traveling as soon as this thing is over could be overwhelming for some of these tourist places, right? Anyway, if you want to talk about that, your plans for spring break or not, what you're planning to do, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. As we've been hearing in the news, mass vaccinations for people over the age of 85 get underway all over BC this morning. Those clinics are opening up. But in Prince Rupert, different story there. Global News reporter Ahmad Agahi is there this morning, joins us now to talk about what's going on. Good morning, Ahmad. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So tell us, what is going on in Prince Rupert today? Well, this is different here. Now, we've been hearing that it, it goes by age in, in the rest of province for folks that are able to sign up with uh, for their COVID-19 vaccination. In Prince Rupert, that is different. Every adult that lives in this community, this city of 12,000 people and a neighboring community of 400 people, Port Edward, is eligible to be vaccinated in the next couple of weeks, by the end of this month, and you know, from what I'm hearing from local officials here, uh, the amount of people they have on hand to help with this vaccine rollout, they think that they can get through everyone much quicker than that. Oh, wow, that's going to be fast then. So why take these steps? What has been going on in Prince Rupert? Well, we're hearing that this community actually did quite well against uh, COVID-19. They were very, very stringent early on and there were nearly no cases of COVID-19 throughout the first uh, year of the pandemic. But since the holidays, uh, things have changed. Uh, there have been outbreaks at elementary schools here. Uh, there have been outbreaks mostly in, in the community. And one of the most devastating outbreaks, Simi, happened at the long-term care center, Acropolis Manor here in Prince Rupert. You don't have to be here long to hear from people and how emotional they uh, get when they speak about the impacts. There were dozens of staff at this long-term care center um, affected by the virus and 14 residents have sadly passed away. So they tell me that was the turning point. And the infection rate of COVID-19 here has actually been one of the highest in the entire province over the last uh, few weeks, especially in February where 1.6% of the people that lived in Prince Rupert had tested positive for COVID-19. And if you compare that to Vancouver, their infection rate uh, is 0.4%. So you can see the difference. Yeah, no kidding. Big difference. So how is this going to work then, Ahmad? Do people make an appointment? Do they just show up at the clinic? How is this being rolled out? There have been staggered appointments. So uh, the calls to a specific number for the community was set up by Northern Health last week. And uh, beginning in a couple of hours here, uh, the 1,000 appointments that they have booked today are for people between the age of 65 and 90 years old who uh, will show up to the uh, Jim Ciccone Civic Center, a community center here in town. And there will be 12 vaccination booths, and they are hoping to get through about 1,000 appointments today. And really, it's a test today to see how efficiently they could do that, because as I was, I was mentioning, they can probably uh, up that number of appointments pretty quickly to even 1,300, I'm hearing, uh, tomorrow and the days after that. Well, it sounds like it is also just a bit of an experiment to see how we're going to do this 
you know, other parts of the province when we start vaccinating more people. Mm-hmm. Yes, and to just see how, how many people are on board, we're hearing that uh, people are pretty confident here with their community and the, the amount of people that have taken advantage of this opportunity, which they say they're very thankful for, but also say it is a bittersweet because um, not only are they uh, glad that they were chosen for this sort of aggressive and uh, intensive vaccine campaign, but they are quick to mention that um, they have been going through a bit of a devastating time here. And uh, this is certainly not very happy times in Prince Rupert, but people are positive and uh, encouraged going forward. Good. I hope it goes well. Uh, Thanks so much for talking to us about it today. No problem. Thanks for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, many people, teachers, uh, parents have been calling for stricter safety protocols in the district of Surrey uh, because of problems that they've had there with COVID-19 exposures. Well, it sounds like some of them are going to be getting that uh, starting today. So we thought, what does that look like? How did this happen? Joining us is Jordan Tinney, the Surrey School Superintendent, to talk more about that. Thank you for being with us this morning. Good morning. Glad to be here. So how did these protocols happen before we'd heard that it had to be a bigger approach? How is it, how is Surrey being able to do this? Well, we worked closely with, uh, with health, with the CDC, with the Ministry of Education on, on what could we do that's more targeted to areas where we're seeing a higher prevalence of cases. So it's, you know, it's just taking, uh, you know, a more focused approach where we know that there are ongoing exposures or repeat cases in schools. In some cases, it's just doubling down on the existing guidelines and being more vigilant. Uh, And in other cases, it's doing some some things different structurally, like changing potentially the time of the school day and having early dismissals for health and safety reviews and things like that. Would you say there have been some schools, then some areas where there just has been repeat problems? Oh, for sure. I mean, there, there are more there are more exposures in, in certain areas of the district than there are in others. I mean, we have, uh, I think I said the other day, you know, probably a, a third of the district um, still has had, you know, very few exposures at all. But we have particular areas of the district that have had numerous exposures. You know, some of our secondary schools have had over 30 letters. And um, that's a lot over a year for sure, yeah. or over seven months. So what do some of these uh, safety protocols look like then? What's new here? I think the biggest thing that's new is we're really trying to take a a careful look at how adults travel across cohorts because some adults are required, you know, the way in which we deliver prep time in schools or education assistance that may uh, support more than one student or or follow a student between different areas of the school. We're trying to look at how do we how do we possibly intervene and stop the adults from doing that, those moves, which is not an easy task. So, for example, um, a French teacher may give preparation time to numerous divisions in an elementary school. And so um, we're asking ourselves, does that have to happen? Do music teachers have to teach every single class? And we want music and we want it done. But do they have to meet with all of those kids face to face? All right. So this does sound like you're just kind of reinstituting or, as you said, like doubling down on the restrictions. Do you feel like in some areas it just got too lax? No, no, I don't. I think that, you know, over a long period of time, I don't think people get lax. You know, people get used to things, sure, and it doesn't hurt to remind everyone all the time of the basics. But the things like changing prep time or taking, you know, three early dismissals in the year to have time given to staff to review all of their health and safety plans to meet uh, online, of course, and say, you know, are we doing everything we we can do? Uh, You know, everybody 
needs reminding of the basics from time to time. But the, the structural things like the early dismissals and, and potentially changing the, the start time for elementary schools so all elementary schools can have their prep at one time and the prep teachers then don't have to move across cohorts is, is huge. So I'll give you an example. We had um, an exposure last night. A letter went out to a school. It's a variant exposure in a school. And so there are 10 adults who are in self-isolation as a result of that one class going into self-isolation. So I sometimes think that the public loses, uh, just isn't aware of how many adults are in certain divisions uh, on a day-to-day basis. Right. Yeah, it sounds like it. So how do you get that message, then, Jordan, through to uh, to the teachers, to the parents then about these new rules? Yeah, so after spring break, we'll start our consultation with parents. Nothing's going to change on March 29th when we return as far as start times or, you know, we have to, we have a board of education that has to approve a calendar, which would include things like the early dismissals or any change to start times. The changes in elementary school to elementary prep are very significant. We need to talk with our teacher union. We also want to consider similar things for our QP staff or education assistants who move across cohorts. So one of the important things of getting the announcement out before spring break is to let people know we're doing these things. We want to look at these things. They're structural changes. They're things we've never done before. Um, They would be targeted to schools where there is higher prevalence or higher rates of, of community exposure. And now we need to begin our consultation to say, okay, how would we actually do that? So the other that, things are, are just more doubling down on our existing rules. Right. So is all that kind of going on right now? No, it isn't. It's spring break. And so we'll start on March 29th. Okay. And what about cleaning of the schools then? I know there has been discussion, you know, the province offering more money for deep cleaning of schools. Has that been an ongoing process? Um, we were given money both by the province and by the uh, federal government last year. And so every everybody, um, did, you know, we hired 140 additional daytime custodians last year, which is huge. Uh, we bought new equipment, all new supplies. So that's been in place. The, the, the notion of a deep clean really doesn't exist anymore. It, it's it's our, all our cleaning protocols for every school every day changed last September. Are you concerned about, you know, post spring break and what's going to happen there if there is if people do just get too loose and forget about the stuff during the spring break time? Yeah, you know, I guess what we're all interested to see what happens. I think it's a great comment because people say, you know, uh, with regards to these rules, gee, aren't you doing that already? And it's not just a doubling down of existing stuff. And, you know, are people being lax? Well, you don't have to look far in community to see all sorts of uh, situations where people let their guard down. And remember, these schools, these schools are have 13-year-olds. You know, if you're a teacher in a class with 30, 13-year-olds or 14-year-olds every day for seven months, Sticking to the guidelines, adhering to them, and, and enforcing them every single day is a challenge. And you think about kindergarten teachers and what is it like to try and limit physical contact with, with students who are five, five years old. So it, it's a challenge, but I'm, we'll all see what happens after spring break. I definitely hope people follow the rules. Yeah, I hope so too. So Jordan, then one more time then for parents, for teachers, what is changing in Surrey schools? Um, for them, they, what they will see is things like restricting adults on, the, on after school, like no more adults or once school is over, we'll be saying, please go home. Uh, we'll see that around lunch times for uh, secondary students. We'll see probably the early dismissals will come very quickly in March. That will be communicated by the Board of Education. 
You'll see principals talking to staff about staff rooms and making sure that, that once again, no one is, everybody's respecting all the rules in the staff rooms. You'll see vigilance, more vigilance around photocopy rooms, only one person at a time, no face-to-face meetings, all meetings virtually. Those are the changes people will see on day one, but the start times and the prep time will come later. All right, lots to be aware of. Jordan, thank you so much for your time. Okay, you're welcome. Take care. You too. That's Jordan Tinney, the Surrey School uh, District Superintendent, talking about the changes that they're going to be implemented. They're on spring break right now, uh, but they said towards the end of that spring break, this is when the discussions are going to ramp this up so that people understand what's going on. And you may wonder, like, why is this such a problem in Surrey schools? Well, to give you an idea, there's just more people in Surrey schools. Uh, According to the Surrey School District, they've got 20 secondary schools. 13 of those 20 secondary schools in that district are operating at a combined average capacity of 122%. That's overcrowding. So social distancing is not easy when you've got a school that is already operating way above capacity. So now they're, um, you know, going to be having these measures come in and really make sure and institute this kind of crackdown, so to speak, so that that post spring break time when we would hope that we're not going to see a surge in cases that they're just going to try to implement all of this to keep people as safe as possible. It's going to be a critical couple of weeks when spring break is over and everybody is back in class. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. Some mixed reactions, I'd say, to the news that outdoor gatherings of up to 10 people are now allowed here in BC. Some experts have been worried that it sends the wrong message because case counts are still stubbornly high, while others feel like outdoor gatherings could be the key to preventing further transmission of COVID-19. So, we found somebody to talk to about this. It is Dr. Stefan Baral, a physician epidemiologist and an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Dr. Baral, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks for having me. How do you feel about the idea of spending more time outdoors as a way to fight COVID-19? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I think it's critical. I think that, you know, often we think of the sort of the alternative being people sitting home alone, but we know that's not the case. We know that often if people aren't socializing outdoors, they're socializing indoors. And this is an infection which by and large, you know, infects others and the risk is really indoors in poorly ventilated spaces. And so I think this idea of not only educating people about the safety of the outdoors, but really encouraging them and facilitating folks to to leverage that safety and, and the, the ability to engage with others outdoors is, is, is critical at this point. Also, do you think by letting them do it outside, they will do it outside and then we're not keeping anything hidden away? Well, I think that's exactly it, is that, you know, when we're constantly, you know, focusing on the idea that anybody having any fun in the context of a pandemic, it means that they're not taking it seriously, just ends up resulting in people taking those activities indoors and outside of the view of the public and of, you know, lowering the chance that they'll be judged for their behavior. And this isn't new. You know, I, I work as a physician in Toronto. You know, we, I work particularly with sexually transmitted infections and HIV, where this has been a common issue that if we tell people to take an abstinence only approach, they just won't tell us about it. And it won't change the amount of risks that they take. It just changes the likelihood that we'll be able to understand it and address it. 
And so I think we're very much in that same place here is that this sort of focus on people engaging socially in the public's eye has resulted in phone calls to the police and phone calls to public health, snitch lines, et cetera. And, and it just has resulted in more people being indoors. And I think we now have to understand that, you know, there may have been some case studies. Um, I, I looked through the literature. There have now been over 150,000 articles published about COVID-19. Wow. I reviewed them again. It's the most studied virus in history. I reviewed them again. There was like a case study maybe of an outdoors-only transmission, but we have to understand that, you know, this is an infection that is happening in people's homes and in people's workspaces. And that requires us to protect those folks in those spaces. And it also means that we need folks to have the energy to engage in the sort of high yield interventions like masking when they're indoors, preventing mm-hmm unnecessary indoor gatherings, all those things. But I think the idea that if we tell them not to do anything and just sit at home, is just it's just not viable anymore. And we have to understand using a harm reduction approach that people are going to socialize. And the more that we can do to, for the, to push them to socialize outdoors, especially as it's getting warmer, I think the less likelihood right. there is of transmission. So Dr. Brawl, what makes the difference then being outdoors? I think there's a number of things. I'd say that probably the best predictor that we know even indoors of infection is the amount of ventilation that's there. And so in well-ventilated spaces, we see lower risk. And it's just based on viral movement that there's a, a, a relationship between how much virus you're exposed to and the risk that like some viral particles are going to be able to cross the mucosal membranes and find the cells that they need and infect those cells. And, and the idea being that it's probably like a few thousand viral particles that you need to be exposed to for an infection to be successful. And so in, inherently, just in the outdoors, there's just so much natural ventilation that happens that the likelihood of that is, is negligible, actually. And so, indeed, while I think it's, it's, it's really visible, like, you know, mm-hmm. you can see people socializing and we saw protests last year and, and you know, famously over the weekend, we saw a vigil uh, in the United Kingdom and we've seen us shut down those events. But in fact, we've never really seen, you know, surges related to the Black Lives Matter protests or any protests for that matter. And so I think this idea now is to start transitioning to thinking about what are the actual things that are causing people to be at risk. And those things are really um, related to where people live and where people work. And I think we need to start doing more in those spaces before we focus our energies on the outdoors. All right. Well, Dr. Baral, thanks for your time. Great. Well, thanks very much for having me. That's fascinating. Dr. Stefan Baral, physician epidemiologist, Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. This is Mornings with Simi. For the last couple of weeks, we have been talking about ALS, and this is our final installment of that discussion. And today, we're going to look at the plight of BC residents who suffer from ALS and the struggle that they face just to find treatment. Dr. Charles Krieger is a professor of kinesiology at Simon Fraser University, who also works at the GF Strong ALS Clinic. He has been studying this disease for decades, and Dr. Krieger joins us now. Thank you for being here this morning. Well, thank you for having me. In all the time that you have been studying ALS, have you seen improvements? Have you seen things change? Yes. Well, I think that in the overall care of ALS patients has improved significantly since I started uh, a number of years ago. And so I think that our overall ability to look after patients for their general patient care, I think, has improved. So that means management, 
of respiratory problems, management of feeding problems. Those kinds of problems have improved. But unfortunately, where we've where we've not been as successful is with regard to the control of the underlying disease. So you've heard, uh, for instance, I guess it was Brad that was telling you about the, all the clinical trials that are going on. And those clinical trials are aimed at trying to find medications that will slow the progression of ALS. And now there have been some uh, medications that have been shown to slow the progression of ALS, most notably the compound Riluzole, also known as Rilutec. So, but it does so very modestly. So, for instance, as, as Brad mentioned and others have mentioned, the average ALS patient will live for three to five years and with Riluzole, so they may get an additional three to six months. So this, this is, of course, it's an improvement compared to nothing, but it's not, right. you know, the kind of treatment that we're looking for. So would you say then some of the, most of the improvements have come in kind of the standard of care that an ALS patient can now expect to receive? Yes, I, that, that's true, particularly with regard to control of, you know, improved respiratory care, which is, so that's, that's not tackling the underlying disease, but just in terms of our ability to, to manage those respiratory problems. Do we understand ALS better now? Yes, we do, but it is more complex than we thought. Uh, so when I, when I initially got into ALS, part of the reason was because this looked like a like it would be a relatively, you know, more straightforward problem. But every time we kind of get close to finding something, we find that it is more complex than we thought. And so that's been, um, a, you know, a problem in terms of being able to understand it. But there's no question of the amount that there's been a tremendous advance since, you know, over the, over the decades, for sure. Yeah. Right. So you're saying when you first got started, you thought, hey, you know what, we're going we're gonna to get this thing in, in a little while. Uh, yeah, you could say that. Um, we, I thought it was going to be more straightforward a problem than it proved to be. Uh, so, I mean, as, as uh, people have told you in previous uh, talks, but there, the problem is the, the neurons that supply muscle, uh, those so-called motor neurons, they will end up progressively dying in this disease. And it looked like it might n- not be a difficult problem to try to find substances that might improve the function of those neurons and thus this could help the disease but actually finding those compounds has proved to be much more challenging than than perhaps one might initially have naively thought. Right well we have heard in the last few weeks about how there are so many promising treatments coming. Do you feel that in your in your work? Well, there are certainly a lot of treatments that that is the case. The trouble is we don't know which ones are going to be successful and which ones are not because, you know, this is some of these, the drug companies, of course, have a commercial interest in, in wanting to sell product. And some of these products, um, the rationale may not be strong in some cases. It may be better in others. And, you know, with, with the benefit of hindsight, we have tried many substances over the years without um, seeing much benefit, except in the case of Riluzole. and But nonetheless, we remain hopeful that we can find something. But, but, it, but as I say, this has proved more challenging than we thought. And of course, I understand as a patient, there is a, the desire to find something that can help them because they know that they have this short window mm-hmm. uh, whereby they are getting progressively more sick and, and more debilitated and they want something and they want something as soon as possible, because they know that there's not a lot of time left for them individually. 
potentially. And so that's why there is a, um, their desire, that very strong desire, which, of course, is totally understandable in terms of trying to find something and find something quickly. Would, would you say, Dr. Krieger, that when someone is diagnosed with ALS, are they at similar points in the disease? Are there certain symptoms that for sure show up before someone gets that diagnosis? Well, in order to make the diagnosis, there are criteria for the diagnosis. People have to have demonstrated weakness. You know, that means that there, there has to be objective evidence for weakness and there has to be other features. But, but the weakness is the main problem and it's also a progressive weakness. So the weakness just doesn't, isn't, isn't like a static uh, problem in terms of loss of muscle power, but one that is progressive. And I mean, with ALS, it affects different muscle groups differently and it has a predilection for certain muscles that it acts on. But nonetheless, it is it is progressive, and that, that's what makes it so terrible because among the muscles that it attacks includes the muscles of breathing. So then you're left with somebody who is having more and more difficulty being able to breathe. And another of the muscles that attacks is the muscles that involve, say, chewing and swallowing. So again, you have people that are progressively losing their voice, losing their ability to chew and swallow, and then, of course, there's problems with their nutrition, and that can compound the, the clinical course making them deteriorate more quickly than they might otherwise do if, if, they, if their nutrition was adequate. So those are some of the problems that we have, but not all, because, of course, you've got the generalized weakness in, in most patients as well. So they all have weakness in their hands and, and, and feet, arms, and so there's less of ability to do self-care as well. So mm-hmm. all of these things make ALS just a terrible disease. So challenging. Dr. Krieger, thank you for your time this morning. Okay, well, my pleasure. Thank you very much. It's Dr. Charles Krieger, a professor of kinesiology at Simon Fraser University. He also works at the GF Strong ALS Clinic and has been studying ALS for decades, 30 years he's been working on this, uh, thinking that, you know what, we're going to crack this thing. Uh, There are some promising treatments out there, but we still have a long way to go. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you talk about an earthquake this morning in the Canadian business landscape. Uh, Rogers has announced their intention to buy Shaw Cable for more than $20 billion. So what are the implications of this deal? Really, what does it mean for you, your cell phone bill, your cable bill, your internet bill? Well, joining us now to talk more about that is Bloomberg Canada's managing editor, Derek DeCloy. Derek, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Were you surprised to hear about this? Yes, I was. This is a a combination of these two companies is something that's been talked about for a long time as a possibility. But, you know, it never really seemed like it was imminent. Um, But here we are. And it's and it's really a combination of of the companies controlled by two of the most prominent families, you know, in the business. And so your first initial impressions of this, then what kind of impact do you think Canadian consumers are going to feel? Well, a lot of that depends on where this goes, because the big impact uh, in terms of competition is that Shaw owns Freedom Mobile. They're the number four player in Canada. You know, Rogers is obviously the, the, you know, one of the big three giants in, in wireless. So the real question here is, is the government of Canada going to allow this to go through without, 
you know, any promises or additional regulations on wireless pricing, because then in, in markets like Vancouver, you would go from, you know, four significant players to three. And that normally has a means the prices rise. So what will the government try to uh, extract uh, by way of promises from these companies? That's the, that's the big impact, I think, on, on the consumer side. On the cable side, you know, they don't really compete. Shaw, is, as you know, based in the West, Rogers really focused on Ontario and the East. So um, they're not, it doesn't really take um, competitors out of the market right. for the most part on cable TV and internet services and that sort of thing. Okay, so what does it mean, though, for other companies like TELUS for Bell? Well, I think it's, you, if you look at the stock market, both TELUS and, and Bell are falling. And I think that's just the market's reflection on the fact that they're going to have a, you know, potentially a much tougher competitor here. Rogers will be a much bigger, stronger company with more cash flow, more ability to, um, uh, to compete uh, on a marketing basis, more ability to compete for wireless spectrum that the companies need to build out 5G networks. Um, and so if it goes through as planned, you know, you're still going to have three really huge uh, uh, companies sort of battling for market share. But Rogers will will have something of a size advantage compared to where they are today, which could be bad for Telus and, and, and Bell. Right. You said if it goes through, do you think they'll this will be challenged by the government? It's hard for me to see the government um, just letting this pass without, um, you know, w- without asking for something in return. There could be any number of things, right? I mean, they could, as they have in the past, the competition authorities could force Rogers to divest certain assets in order to make sure that there's adequate competition. Um, they could come out with new regulations on how much your wireless bill can be or the cost of data, that sort of thing. Um, there will be something, some set of conditions. That being said, um, it, it's hard to see the blo- the government blocking it entirely. Um, you know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it does create a, a bigger Canadian company with more capacity to invest. And that is the argument on the Rogers and Shaw side. You know, if you want first rate 5G services, Canada, you need to allow companies to be big enough to, you know, spend the billions of dollars to make that happen. Oh, boy. Okay, Derek, thanks so much for talking about it this morning. Thanks. Appreciate that. That's Derek DeCloy. He's a Bloomberg Canada managing editor talking about the huge deal where Rogers has announced its intention to buy Shaw Cable for about $26 billion. That includes debt and paying for shares. Lots of speculation about how that this is going to impact markets and customers right across the country. More to come on that. That story just broke early this morning.